We're more about quantity of life than quality of life as a result of the stroke that he suffered when we were returning back from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Uh, those last couple of years, even before the stroke, they were marked by diminishing short-term memory. But he was still teaching the Sunday morning Bible class in the gymnasium and on Wednesday morning Bible class right over here, as well as making calls each and every day, either in person or on the phone. Uh, and I know for a fact that there were several people who had attended his Sunday school class or the Wednesday morning Bible class because they said to themselves, and some said out loud, he's old and he's not going to be with us much longer, and we want to hear whatever he has to say because he's been at this for a long time. And the only reason I bring that up this morning, besides the fact that it would be the commemoration of his 92nd birthday, is because the book that we are beginning to study the last couple of weeks, 1 John, is the same scenario. This is a man who is about 90-some years old, and he's the last surviving of the original 12. The last eyewitness apostle. I don't know about you, but I would be curious to listen to what this man has to say about Jesus. And so we, we have begun uh, looking at this letter that he wrote. That he wrote because he was really concerned, more than concerned, but really concerned about the fact that now that there's a third generation of Christian believers, the first generation, they went out and preached the gospel like Jesus told them to, and thousands of people came into the kingdom, and those people who came into the kingdom told other people, and now there's the third generation. But by the time we get to the third generation, because of human nature, there's always somebody who thinks that there has to be something new, something better, something improved. And there's a group of individuals, uh, one of them particularly, Serenthus, who was actually living in, in Ephesus, where... John was, who were propagating the beginning of what became the heresy of Gnosticism. It wasn't full-blown, but they are the beginning of it. Um, they said, you know what, that story that you've heard is really not quite all true, but we have a better revelation. And if you get the knowledge that we have, and you understand what we know, then you'll really be saved. You were really, and, and for them, they could not comprehend the incarnation. They did not believe that God could become flesh and dwell among us. So in their theology, they said that when that man that was born to Mary and Joseph was baptized by John in the River Jordan, that the Spirit of Christ came upon him and did miraculous things through him, and taught great things through him as a prophet. But when it came time for the crucifixion, that spirit left him, because surely God could not die. 
and the resurrection. It was not a physical resurrection. It was a spiritual resurrection. It was just, that's what they believed. They believed that your body and my body is absolutely sinful and could not be redeemed. So there was this spiritual life and physical life, and the two did not. And so if you knew the right thing in your mind, that gave you spiritual rebirth. You can do anything you want in your body because it can't be redeemed anyway. So John is writing against that heresy. And we've talked about it the last couple of weeks that he begins his letter by saying, look, now I'll read between the lines. These guys want you to believe this kind of stuff, but they weren't there. I was. I share with you what we saw, what we heard. I touched him. I walked with him. I saw the miracles. But more than seeing the miracles, I was there, John could say, when they nailed him to the cross. I was there, and I heard everything he said on that cross. I was there when he died. I saw the water and the blood flow from his side. I was there when we put him in the tomb, wrapped in those burial clothes, wrapped in that mummified position. And I was there on Easter Sunday morning when those clothes were still wrapped, but the body was gone. I was there on Sunday night when he appeared in the room. I t we touched him. We fed him. He was alive and well. He is. And he could have said, pick up my gospel. I wrote that gospel that you might know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Not just some spirit. He was and is the Son of God. Last Sunday morning, we read the first, or five, we read verse 5, 6, and 7, um, and we learned one of the great theological truths. There's at least three of them that John gives to us in, in this little short letter that he's written to these people, and the first one is this, God is light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And the Amplified Bible says, no, not in any way. There's no darkness in him. No, not in any way. It did not say God has light. It did not say light is God. God is light. It is his nature. That's part of his nature. John calls him the light of life. Without God, there is no spiritual life. We talked about the fact that without, without the sun, there would be no life on this planet. And we also said with when it comes to spiritual life, there would be no spiritual life without the Son, S-O-N. There would be no spiritual life. Spiritual life is dependent on the Son. John will say later on in, in the fifth chapter, he who has the Son has life. He who does not, does not have life. Life is dependent. Spiritual life is dependent on the Son. God is light. Jesus came as a light into the world. A light to reveal the Father. A light to reveal to us our need of salvation. Our need of God's grace and God's mercy. So I want to read verses 5 through 10 again this morning. 
First John 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, I suppose there are several ways to look at this letter that he wrote. And by that, I don't mean interpretation. I mean how we might outline it, how we might take the structure and, 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 and learn from it. Since we know he's writing to refute false teaching, perhaps we could think of this letter in these terms. How do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if you're a Christian? Somebody says, I know about me, I want to know about them. Well, don't worry about them. How do you know if you're a Christian? We leave the judging to the Father. What is it that reveals if you're really Christian or not? Is it because you go to church on Sunday? Is it because we own a Bible and know where it's at? I heard about a t-shirt that someone sells. And they will know we are Christians by our t-shirts. So what's the real answer? In his letter, John gives us three basic tests that, that, cites, that he cites as being evidence of our conversion. Three of them. The first one is, what do you believe? What do you believe? A doctrinal test. What do you believe about God? What you believe about Jesus Christ is the most important question in your life. What do you believe? Secondly, is how do you live? How do you live? How I live proves what I believe. How do I live? Number three, who do you love? Who do you love? We have a doctrinal test, an ethical test, and a relational test. John says, if we don't love one another, we don't love God. And if we don't love God, we're not born again. So these three things, you'll find these three things being repeated in one way or another all the way through the book of John. John's an interesting writer. We went through Romans, and we only took 50 weeks to do that. And, and, and Paul, he would kind of lay out precepts, and he would just keep, you know, going along and very linear. John's not linear at all. His writing is more like going up a 
spiral staircase. Been up one of those? You keep coming back to the same place. A step higher, but you keep coming back to the same place. A step higher, and a step higher, and a step higher. When we read through John, he's going to start with these basic things. And as we read through these few chapters, he's going to take us around. He'll come back to him again. He'll expand on him a little bit more. Go around the corner again and come back to the same thing and we'll see it again. And as we go through this, I'll try to point that out in the coming weeks. I thought about just jumping, but I just want to take it verse by verse this morning, this section that we were in. Last Sunday we looked at verse 5, and that's part of that first test of what do you believe. We'll keep coming back to that. But what we believe is this, God is light. God is light. And one of the things that means is he's truth. He is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. He doesn't know truth. He is truth. He is purity. Because he's truth and purity, because he brought us into his family, John wants us to know that we are to be people of the light. We are to be people of light. I can hear my dad coming into a room every once in a while, but we had the lights down, and he would flip on the light switch. We are to be people of the light, not people of the dark. That was usually when you had your girlfriend sitting and the lights were dim, and he would come in, and we're to be people of the light, not people of the dark. In these verses we read just a moment ago, John throws out three couplets, three opposites uh, that address the the difference between false teaching that has cropped up and brought division in the church and and the gospel that Jesus gave to us when he walked the earth. He, He begins his couplets with three different claims. The NIV uses the word claims, and so I'm going to read from the NIV from on here on out this morning. But claim number one in John chapter one, verse six, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. We walk in darkness, we lie. Now, we've been told to be careful about calling people liars, but John says if you say that you're walking in fellowship with God and you're walking in continual sin, you're a liar. John was writing to people who are being taught that the way you act is not as important as long as you have the right knowledge. He wants them to know that's not the gospel that he heard. That's not the gospel that Jesus gave to them. The gospel that Jesus gave to them, deny yourself and follow me. Walk in the path that I bring light to. The quality of our life makes a difference. The quality of our life makes a difference. Now, you cannot work for your salvation, but because you are saved, you're going to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To walk... To walk, it talk, 
if we walk in the darkness, to walk indicates a persistent movement in a particular direction. A persistent movement in a particular direction. I want to call that a, a lifestyle. A lifestyle. If we're in relationship with Jesus Christ, it means we're no longer habitually walking in the darkness, but we're habitually walking towards the light, walking in the light. We do not continue to practice sin. We endeavor to live a life of truth and purity. The quality of our life makes a difference. You can't cut corners, take shortcuts. There's no place for shadows. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. For example, if you were to look at the ninth verse of the second chapter, he's going to come back to this. John says you're lying to yourself if you say you're light in the fellowship with God and yet you hate your brother. He said you're lying to yourself, you're in darkness. You're not living the truth. You're lying to men. Quality of life makes a difference. Claim number two. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin. How often do you hear that word in the culture? About the only place you hear that word sin is if you come to church here and a few other churches in town. Unfortunately, there's a lot of churches you won't hear the word sin anymore. Words like dysfunction, disease, mistakes, failures. In my reading this week, I came across a, a notation that said a few years ago, the Oxford Junior Dictionary Remove the word sin from its contents. They explained it had fallen into disuse and was no longer relevant to younger generations. Because they don't sin? No. But if we claim to be without sin, the ESV says, if we say we have no sin, if we have no sin, notice it did not say if, we say, if we say we have not sinned, it says if we have no sin. Listen, we were born sinners. Every one of us. This letter that John is writing, who's he writing it to? My little children, he says. He's writing to the family, born again people. They've been born again. Yet he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Though they've been saved, though they've been forgiven, we still have a sinful nature within us, don't we? Paul told us there's this struggle going on that we need to learn. We need to learn to submit ourselves not to our sinful nature, but to the Holy Spirit who wants to guide us and direct us. Because whichever one we surrender to, we become slave to. 
while we be given authority to say no to temptation, I don't know anyone that's pulled that off in entirety perfectly except Jesus. The root word for sin is missing the mark. That's a, a, a word that comes from archery, missing the bullseye. But what it comes down to is sin is disobeying God's laws. Sin is disobeying God's laws. We've all sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's laws. There are individuals who believe that there is this spiritual moment beyond salvation, the second work of grace, where suddenly you are sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit and you will never sin again. Oh, I wish that were true. That would really be sweet, wouldn't it? But you know what I've discovered? The longer you walk with Jesus, the more layers that he begins to peel away of sin. Now, we often think of sin as just being do not kill and do not murder, or murder and do not steal and do not lie. But what about those things called you know, there's gossip and envy and covetousness and um, we are all susceptible. And the good thing about God when he shines the light on us, he doesn't give us more than we can stand, blow us away. But we're in this process. We're saved, we're forgiven, but we're in this process of becoming more like Christ. Not only are we in the process of becoming more like Christ, but we're in the process of going up to the right and becoming more victorious over temptation, living in authority over it. If we say we have no sin, if we say we're not vulnerable to temptation, I've been sanctified, John says you've deceived yourself. You remember what the Apostle Paul said at the end of his journey? He wrote to Timothy, this is a faithful saying, that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And you know what the next line says? Of whom I am chief. The man who's written 13 letters included in the Holy Scripture. The one anointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, at the end of his journey, not the beginning... At the end, he also said, I fought the fight, I kept the faith. But he said, he, he died to save sinners of whom I am chief. You understand as you go on that, that repentance and confession are lifelong spiritual disciplines. I love reading Charles Spurgeon and the stories associated with him. I don't know if all the stories that are accredited to him are actually true or not. When we get to heaven, it'll be interesting to find out just how many of them are actually true. But one of the stories that's told about Spurgeon is he, he heard about a guy and, and he confronted this guy who claimed to be a man without sin. And intrigued by the man's claim, 
Spurgeon invited him home for dinner and allowed him to speak to him, to explain to him how he had come to this place where he was without sin in his life. When the man got all finished with his explanation of his sinlessness, Pastor Spurgeon took a glass of water and emptied the context directly into the face of this man sitting across from him. And the man became flustered, as any of us would have, and he upset and highly indignant that he was treated in such a way, and he let Spurgeon know it with both barrels. And Spurgeon replied, Ah, you see, the old man is not dead. He'd simply faded and could be revived with only a glass of water. The Bible tells us we've all sinned, born in sin, saved by grace. As I said earlier, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We will not be perfect and sinless until we see Jesus face to face and this mortality will put on immortality. Then we will be totally saved, totally perfected. But between now and then, we deal with the issue of sin. Claim number three, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. We make him out to be a liar. Who? Calling God a liar? Now we're getting on thin ice. Deceiving ourselves, but now calling God a liar. We're not to cover up, hide, deny, defend, or define, or pretend our weaknesses or failures and sin did not happen. We cannot refuse to accept responsibility of the failure in the action attitudes of our life. For when we do, we're calling God a liar. So here's what I'm getting so far from what we've talked about this morning. God is light. He's not playing games with us. You can trust him completely. You can trust him completely. God is light. If we want to progress in our walk with him, if we want fellowship with him, then we can't play games with him either. He doesn't play games with us. So we can't play games with him. We're called to a life of openness, a life of truth, a life lived in the light. This is not one of those passages you can say, well, I wish so-and-so was here today. They really need this one. This is one we all have to deal with. We all know what it is to be human, to have areas of weakness and failure. It speaks to us in the context of spirit-filled living and the daily struggle that comes with spirit-filled living. It speaks to us about the quality of life within the community of believers. What is this quality of life? We see that Jesus has brought to us life, and he brought to us the life of God. God who is light, in him there is no darkness at all. But what about us? Caught in our humanness, our, our prejudices, our weakness, our moods, all the contingencies of living in a fallen world. What about us? Jesus is calling us to a life of openness, honesty, 
a life of confession. He said, quit denying, quit defending, quit pretending. Allow redemption to be ongoing. There's a certain amount of brokenness and hurt and fear in each one of our lives to be dealt with. And we've all caused a certain amount of hurt and brokenness and failures that needs to be dealt with. John tells us how to deal with it. We have three more ifs that are coupled with the first three ifs. The first three if claims. So beginning in verse 6 again, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from sin. Counter number one, walk in the light. Walk in the light. Walk in the shining of God. Walk in the revelation of the truth of Scripture. Walk with your sunroof wide open. I've shared before that when I was in college at, in Nampa, Northwest Nazarene at the fall revival, the, the preacher who came and he spoke to us from Romans and First John. And I don't remember mor- morning and night, which was which, but I remember he talked about First John. When he got to this, talk about walking in the light. As he was in the light, he said, imagine you're a, your person is like a house that has a roof that will retract or open up. Now that was before they built stadiums that had retractable roofs. But he visualized that, that you could just open up the roof and let God shine in. And that's what he's saying here. Let God shine in. Let him, let him, let him come in and see. Um, open, the, open the sunroof. Or ride in my wife's car. Put the top down. So you have to put sunscreen on when you're driving down the freeway. That's what it means to be open before God. It means exposing myself to the verdict of God. Exposing myself to the verdict of God. Going back to the concept of our, house, our body's a house. All the drawers of my life were open to him, all the closets, all the cupboards. You ever had someone call you and say, we'll be by your house in 10 minutes? And you looked around the living room. Quick, pick up stuff, put it somewhere. Raised, part, part of raising six different kids. And... Uh, there were some girls, I won't name any of them, but we would tell them, go clean your room. They'd come back 20 minutes later, and you'd open the door, sure enough, the floor's clean, the bed's made, and everything's in place. But then I went and opened the, glo- the closet. Everything that had been in the room was on the floor of the closet. I don't know why I put a rod in the shelf at the top of the closet, but it was all... And we have a tendency to do that with the Lord. Parts of our life we put in the closet, put in the drawers and say, you can't go there. Walking in the light says, God, you're welcome. 
Look wherever you want to look. And the result of openness before the fathers, we have fellowship with one another. Koinonia, sharing life together. Partaking of life together. Fellowship with one another. A fellowship first with the Father. But because I have fellowship with the Father, it means I have fellowship with you. If I'm not in fellowship with you, it means I'm probably not in fellowship with the Father. They go hand in hand. We'll come back to that issue as we continue around the spiral staircase going through 1 John. The second thing is the blood of Christ will purify us. The blood of Christ will purify us. Walking in the light infers we're going somewhere and we're making progress. We're making progress. The blood will purify me. There will be an ongoing filtering process of my nature, my temperament, my personality. My heart will be changed. My thinking will be changed. It will be purified by the blood of Jesus Christ as I'm becoming more like him and less like me. The old hymn asks, would you be free from your passion and pride? What's the answer? There's power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. Counterpoint number two. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Counterpoint number two is confession. Walking in the light and confession go hand in hand. Confession is walking in the light, openness before God. Letting him render the verdict as what he sees. And when we let him render the verdict, his promise is forgiveness and cleansing. I'm going to talk a minute about what confession is not. Confession is not just talking about sin. It's not just talking about sin. In our present day culture, we've seen numerous celebrities talk about openly about their sins. Of course, they don't call them sins. They call them other issues. Um, but they write books about their misadventures, their habits, their hurts, their hang-ups. But just talking about it is not the same as confession. Confession is not the same as explaining my sin. We like to explain our sin. We don't go very far in our walk with the Lord before we're trying to explain it. I wasn't worrying, because we know the Bible says not to worry, and if the Bible says not to worry and we worry, what is worry? I wasn't worrying. It was just concern. That wasn't anger. It was righteous indignation. That wasn't a lustful look. It was just an appreciative glance at God's creation. It's not my fault. This is just the way that God made me. I was raised in a dysfunctional family. I could go on. 
we could come up with a pretty long list between us, I'm sure, of how we explain or rationalize. Confession is not the same as being real. And I put that in quotes. I'm amazed at some of the stuff I see on Facebook, which, which is why I don't look at Facebook very often. These kind of posts, people claiming to be real, hanging out all this stuff. We have to say, when it comes to confession, all right, God, you name it, then agree to call it the same thing. At the, at the root of the word confess is this definition. To confess means to say the same thing. Confess means to say the same thing that God says about it. God, you said it's sin. That's what it is. It's, I've sinned against you. There's something very important that we need to understand. When we cover up sin, which is a failure to obey God, and we go on unjudged, unrebuked, unchecked, and uncleansed. I didn't put this in your notes, but I put it on the screen, and I want you to look at it. What I cover up, I'm left with. What I cover up, I'm left with. I should have taken you to the story of David. David talks about when I tried to cover up my sin, my bones began to deteriorate inside of me. What I cover up, I'm left with. However, when I open up, I receive not only the revealing of God, but also the healing of God. He'll forgive me, and he will cleanse me. He will forgive me, and he will cleanse me. God, I'm calling it sin that you did. I repent of it. Forgive me. And at that moment, God forgives and he puts his healing ointment on the wound. The picture that comes to my mind when I read 1 John 1, 9 is a tube of Neosporin. I have one in my pack that I carry hunting. I have one in my bathroom at home. Um, I always want to know where it is, because if I nick myself, I cut myself, first thing I look for is neosporin, then a Band-Aid, if a Band-Aid's the proper thing. You know why? I've discovered that it will heal the wound a lot faster and protect me from infection. When he says he'll forgive you and cleanse you, the same process. He will, by his blood, he will purify me. By his blood, my continual openness before him, I will gain victory over areas that I had that were a stronghold in my life because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all unrighteousness. God is light. His blood cleanses us. We're tempted to lie, to cover up, to ration lives. Ever been at the dinner table? And suddenly a glass of milk falls on the table and milk's everywhere? What happened? 
It just fell. It just fell. And you say, no, it did not just fall. The glass never just falls. What happened? Somebody knocked it over. Somebody knocked it over. We've never found out who somebody is, have we? But somebody knocked it over. There comes a moment in the dynamic of my decisions. I can no longer blame my mother, my father, my toilet training. There comes to this place, confession is the owning of it. It is the owning of it. I take responsibility for my actions and my decisions. Now, I'm not saying you weren't abused. I'm not saying your family wasn't dysfunctional. But because of Christ and our faith in Christ, there comes a moment where I can no longer use those excuses. Because in Christ Jesus, I'm a brand new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. He's making me more like Jesus. He's bringing his healing power. If I confess to him and repent of him. The point of owning it is also the point of the forgiveness of it. The forgiveness of it. God in Christ Jesus forgives all sin. All the tangled up messes, all the messed up relationships, all the destructive habits, bitterness and resentments. He forgives all that is confessed. Let me put, throw another point in here. Once you've come to become a child of God and you're walking with Jesus and you trip and fall in sin, you don't have to go back to the beginning and roll double sixes to start over. A righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up. When I was a youngster, eight or nine years old, I got to take piano lessons. And the thing I hated worst about piano lessons was recital. Because recital, you're supposed to memorize this piece and play it perfectly. In my nature, anyway, practicing, I would go and, until I made a mistake. And in practice, I would go start all over again because I got to get past that point. I make it a little farther, make it, then I go back and start over. The reality is the only person at the recital who had any music or knew what was going on was the music teacher and my mother who made, heard me play the mistakes nine million times. <laughs> the other people didn't. Teacher tried to teach us, just keep going. Just keep going. Same thing's true in your walk with Christ. You don't ignore it. You confess it. But keep going. I don't have to go back to go. 
I don't have to start over. I just keep going. Walk honestly and right. Walk openly in the Lord. Granting the Holy Spirit full access to who you are. One more if clause. Verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Then going into chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. This is God's goal. To live in victory. We're on our way to being that kind of person. But between here and perfection, good chance there will be moments when we sin. So he says, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for us, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have an advocate. We have a great lawyer. And you don't even have to pay him anything because he paid it all. He paid it all. Let me paraphrase what John says, if anyone does sin. My little children, my intention is that all marriages be happy, mature, fulfilling. But if not, we have an advocate. My little children, I'm writing this so that all of you be healthy and whole in body and mind. But if, know this, we have an advocate who calls to the Father on our behalf. I'm writing this so there won't be any brokenness and tragedies and scars. But if there are, know this, we have an advocate. Thank you, Lord. Suddenly into the reality of a fallen world and the brokenness comes a healing word. We have an advocate. One who speaks to the Father in our help. God wants you to know you have a helper today. Someone to stand beside us. Someone who's in us. The perfect advocate. The perfect lawyer. The righteous one. Who provides us with a way. The only way. The only way in the world to deal with our sins and our failures. Is through the, the advocate. Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Paul wrote, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins. First importance. Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The precious blood of Christ, the perfect blood of Christ, has paid the penalty. John said, he is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. David wrote in Psalms 103, Praise the Lord, O my soul. My inmost beating, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins. There it is again. We read it in John. He forgives and cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. All your sins. Heals all your diseases. I love verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. 
How many of you are glad you didn't get what you deserve from God? Who would be here if we got what we deserve from God? Thank God he does not deal with us according to our sins. Verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has it removed our transgressions from us. Since east and west are directions and not poles on the globe like the north and south poles, the inference is that there's an infinite, unmeasurable space between us and our sins that have been confessed to the Lord. How many read the letter I sent out this week? What I wrote in the letter, I quote right here. Roe Clement, in his book Songs of Experience, made the following comments regarding our transgressions being removed as far as the east is from the west. He said, however many miles you think lie between east and west, you cannot look two ways at once. You cannot look two ways at once. You have to turn your back on one in order to look at, in the direction of the other. When God forgives us, he puts our sin and us on two different horizons. So when he looks at our sin, he's no longer looking at us. And when he looks at us, he's no longer looking at our sin. That's because we've been covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb. Paul uses the word justification to describe our forgiveness. We can live in that place that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. When we walk on the light, there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Would you stand with me? I want to sing a song of thanksgiving for our forgiveness this morning. You are my king.